and Kendall. Those are the two famous for the meat Kendall cake. Kendall milkcake, yeah. which is disgusting. It's to keep you going. Mm, it's not... I'd rather die. <laughs> so if you're halfway up a mountain and you're having a hypoglycemic event, and no, the only me. thing that's in my pack is Kendall milkcake, you want me to just carry on? I don't want the last thing that I taste to be minty chewing gum in a chocolate form bar. Fair enough. I'll I'll leave you, and when I get back to wherever we set off from, I'll just let them know where where your last position was. He did. They can go and pick you up. Yeah, it'd be fine. I'm sure he'll be okay. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story. (laughs) It does. This story starts in the Elizabethan age. Have we been there before? The first one. I think we've been there once long ago. Mm. In fact, I know we've been there once long ago because the two stories are slightly interconnected. But we'll get to that. So we're starting specifically in the year 1566. Because it was at some point in the year 1566 that Edward Whiteman was born in the town of Burton-upon-Trent. It was also, coincidentally, the year that James I was born, who we might be hearing from a little bit later. James I and VI. Yes, yeah, sorry, James I and VI. Let's give him his Scottish dues. Yeah. yeah. Little Edward's family were part of the emerging middle class. Specifically, they were in the textile industry. On his mother's side, at least. His uh, father was apparently a school teacher. They worked as successful woollen drapers in and around the East Midland towns of Burton, Derby and Lichfield. I don't think I've been to any of those places. Mm. The well, Midlands kind of gets missed out on my agendas. Well, there's a lot of history there to go and mm. see. I should go more. Well, it's, it's nice to have a place that you haven't quite got to yet. It's something mm-hmm. to look forward to as you approach your 40s. Thank you. You're welcome. But it was a great time to be in the wool trade specifically because uh, Queen Elizabeth protected the wool industry. There was a lot of protectionism around it as it was the main source of income for England for a long time, wool and exports. Yeah, a big thing. The reason for the, um, you know, the the cloth caps that poor people wear, Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, a law that said that you had to have your head covered when you were in... um, certain situations so it's a legal requirement and the cheapest head covering you could buy were these little woolen caps so it's basically they were quite itchy weren't they probably unless they were lined i i I guess you could get them lined if you had a little bit more money but it was just a great way of like we're gonna prop up our own wool industry by forcing Uh everybody in the country to buy wool by Mm -hmm. law essentially i still enjoy a woolen uh chunky knit jumper I'm a bit sad that I'm having to put mine away now. It's getting a bit too warm. I have a couple of really nice wool. You can wear whatever you want whenever you like, Joe. Not not if I don't want to sweat profusely and be Uh incredibly red in the face. People will assume I have some kind of um, blood pressure condition. (laughs) Anyway, I forgot where we were for a second. The family from the wool industry, the heavily protected wool industry, they made enough money that Edward Whiteman could be sent to the local grammar school. And here, he learned everything he would need to take the family business to the next level. To go from, you know, being a local wool draper to a, an international wool merchant. 
Oh, that's quite a big jump. It would be, if he can manage mm. it. And to round off his education, young Edward was then sent 70 miles away to Shrewsbury in the West Midlands to serve as an apprentice to a wool cloth trader. So they realised it was a big jump and they're like, well, you've learned everything you can here. We need to send you to the big city, to Shrewsbury, where you can learn international trade. Is that how you pronounce it? Because I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. I'm going with Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury. Is what I, I would say that, it. but people call it Shrewsbury as well, don't they? Potato, potato. Hmm. The thing Apparently about it's quite nice. The thing about Shrewsbury is it's on the border with Wales, mm-hmm. so it's literally you know I think part of the town is technically in Wales. So in terms of international, it's the softest of international trading because it's Wales to England and England to Wales, but it's still getting that flavour for him. Still got that border. Yeah, Shrewsbury at the time was a thriving town of five thousand people, nestled in a loop of the River Severn in its position on the border of Wales, which made it the main centre for the trade of Welsh wool. As a result, the wool drapers in the town held an inordinate amount of power. So they they basically said what happened in the town of Shrewsbury at the time. Because they had the goods... Yeah, all the the wealth that flowed into the town was through them. Right. So where the money is, is where the power is. There were four main churches within the town, and it was well known that the Drapers would all attend the Church of St Mary. So it is almost certain that Edward Whiteman would have been a regular attender in the late 1580s and the early 1590s. At that time, the sermons at the church were being provided by an evangelical preacher called John Tomkeys. Concerned by the tolerance of Catholicism, one of the first things John Tomkeys had done after his appointment to the post at St Mary's was to have all of the decorations taken out of the church. So he was like, all of this is popery. It is. So this is, this is really early days of evangelicalism. That's not even a word, but... Uh, yeah, the Protestant movement is still finding its feet. Uh-huh. Yeah, because there was, there's like a million different branches under ste- underneath. And um, we're going to learn about one of those branches in a minute. Okay. But yeah, so he, he'd seen that Queen Elizabeth was... You know, she wasn't wanting to reignite the sort of persecution of the Catholics to the the same degree as, you know, maybe uh, her brother and her father had. Mm-hmm. Um, she just didn't want to continue with this flip-flopping between the two. So she was trying to be a bit more indulgent. Yeah. And John Tomkey saw that as weakness. So he had all of the stuff taken out of the church. Uh, he whitewashed all the walls of the church and then just wrote sentences from the scripture. So that was the only decoration was just text okay. on the walls. Back, back to basics. Back to basics. We're, we're doing a much more puritanical kind of uh, worship here. Thank you mm-hmm. very much. Yeah. He also refused to wear the traditional vestments, such as the surplice, which is the sort of white frock bit that goes over mm-hmm. the top, um, and would not use the sign of the cross when baptising children. Okay. Which I, I don't know why that was a big thing, but it was. They don't do that now, do they, even in Protestant churches? Uh, well, C of E, they do. Do they? Yeah, both my kids have been baptised, and you I get mean, the sign I was, of the cross. Is it baptism or is it christening? Is it the same thing? Yeah. Baptism's Catholic, isn't it? Well, and then christening is Well, when my Protestant. kids were christened, let's say, they had christened. the sign of the cross made. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, did they? Okay, yeah, yeah. fine. I, I remember, I saw it with my own eyes. Hmm. We put them in a dress, 
both the girl and the boy. Yeah. Uh, and then they had holy water from the River Jordan, I believe. Um, and that was, and then they had the oil. So can holy water? It can just be any water that's blessed. Yes. But so it could be like your council tap water, as long as it's. <laughs> I, th- I think so. I think any water can be blessed in a pinch. Got you. If if the film John Constantine taught me anything, it's that um, you can bless just regular water to make it holy water, as long yeah. as you have the authority to do so. Mm-hmm. Now, these puritanical sorts of flashes, this this puritanical bent to the way that John Tomkeys did things, it was actually quite in keeping for the town of Shrewsbury, uh, which had previously provided a position to a man called William Axton at Morton Corbett Church for four years despite William openly stating that he would not kneel for communion and that he did not accept the authority of the bishops. Okay. So he felt that you didn't really need um, any conduit between yourself and God. He didn't see himself uh, you know, as the person talking to God uh, on behalf of his parishioners so much as the guy who was just the first among equals did William Axton. He was like, I'm just kind of trying to keep us all together going in about the same direction. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm just saying somebody's got to organise, you know, the tea afterwards, and I may as well do that. Yeah. Although a religious commission was sent to the town in 1584 to, you know, try and send a message about this eccentric way that they were worshipping, this non-orthodox way, it was almost immediately followed by a two-day visit from the Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley, who made it... I know Robert Dudley... I know him. You know he's, him. He's, uh, he was Queen Elizabeth's favourite, wasn't he? Well, what um, he was in this context was somebody who made it very clear that he was supportive of the nonconformist preachers. Yeah. Even attending a sermon by John Tomkeys. Mm-hmm. And the text of that sermon is available. You can still read it to this day if you, if you want to search for it. It's English. It is. And the way it's written is with the Fs representing Ss as well that make it really hard to read. Yeah. But it was a massive um, publicity stunt, uh, and it really gave the people of Shrewsbury an idea because this was like the local earl. This was the guy who was you know, in charge of the day-to-day running of the area, and he was going, no, no, it's fine, guys. I like what you're doing. Yeah. And I'll, it was basically a sort of implied, I'll offer you protection um, yeah. for you to worship in whatever way you want. And he was in popular court circles. Mm. So so that protection would have felt very real yeah. for the guys of Shrewsbury at the time. And it meant that Shrewsbury, with the protection of this powerful earl, was one of the most liberal places in England when it came to the discussion of religious practices. Interesting. For the prosperous mercantile class, this nonconformity was equated to the idea of intelligence and sophistication with those in the town viewing the more traditional Catholic beliefs of those in the surrounding countryside as evidence of popish ignorance. So they're like, oh, well, you can have your fairy stories and your, you know, miracles and all that kind of jazz over there in the countryside where you know nothing. Over here, we we are, you know, interested in science and in, Mm. um, you know, progress so of course we're going to question the orthodoxy of the church and we're going to find interesting how that was sort of embedded Mm. so many years ago but uh, not as much today but it is still very much relevant today if you go to any sort of protestant area which most of the uk 
as a whole is, there is still that snobbishness of, like, people look down, Protestantism as a rule looks down on Catholicism as, like, fairy tales and Mm. make-believe. Yeah. And that they're wrong and actually they're being silly. And it's funny that they seeds were sown all them years ago. Mm, Because it it was a way of... um... Because it was broke, you know, it was a break away from the Pope and the sort of papal authority. It was like, oh, we've got more independence. We we have the opportunity to worship in our own way, and that mm-hmm. felt much more enlightened and much more progressive, and more in keeping with with the way these guys were living their lives because they were forging new, you know, the middle class wasn't really a thing. They were forging this new way of living, yeah. and it needed its own sort of religious practices to go along with that, that were cutting edge as well. And for teenage Edward Whiteman, whose parents had been religiously conservative, the culture of questioning religious orthodoxy was exciting and it was liberating. This was his teenage rebellion. This was the equivalent of him going out, uh, trying drugs, um, getting a bit promiscuous, you know, going clubbing. Yeah. This was the the Elizabethan equivalent. I mean, I'm guessing he went out whoring as well. And I'm guessing Uh, he quaffed a lot of ale. Quaffed. I love that word. Yeah. But... you know, the equivalent of going to a rave was going to a non-conformist church mm-hmm. and openly questioning the uh, you know, the received wisdom of uh, your elders. I can imagine it was quite radical in the mm-hmm. day. It was like quite a big deal. Like, you'd been brought up with this... Well, maybe not at this time. We're in the Elizabethan age, but yeah. people, there'd be people still alive that remember um, Catholicism being... But- the- we're only a li- yeah. I mean, we're only what a little ways out from not only um, Henry himself pre um, uh-huh. conversion. Well, because he was still a Catholic. That's uh, the weird thing. 100%. He was still a Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he just wanted his own religion so he could get divorced mm-hmm. and so he could and get money. Yeah, and the money. Um, but he was only fifty something when he died. So mm. it, all you had to do is live longer than that and then when there was a quick succession of yeah then sort of met edward mary and then elizabeth it was the flip-flopping i think it was we're uh-huh. catholic now we're not now we are now we're not and what elizabeth seemed to want to do more than anything is like well let's just stop this flip-flopping mm-hmm. because lots of people are dying it's not I'm really sure helpful. It's, it's it's in law now that we're not allowed a catholic monarch is it I know yeah. that we finally got rid of the um, laws that banned Catholics from holding political office, and that wasn't... It wasn't too long ago that we did that. I think it was Victorian when we finally mm-hmm. allowed Catholics to actually yeah. hold positions of power I'm again. I'm not sure you're allowed to have a Catholic monarch in I, the UK. Probably not. I, mm. That's probably written in somewhere. Well, it'd be difficult to be a Catholic and the head of the Church of England, wouldn't it? Although I was watching a television program the other day, uh, Tony Robinson going around uh, like cathedrals of Britain, and the guy that designed Liverpool Cathedral was a Catholic, but it was a Church of England cathedral, and he was buried outside it because he wasn't allowed to be buried inside it. So yeah, he knew was... he knew what he was doing when he took the contract. Yeah, let's be fair. Mm-hmm. But it it is I, I'm guessing the problem will be you can't both be the head of the Church of England, which is God's representative on earth Mm. and subordinate to the Pope, who is God's representative on earth. You've got to pick a lane in that situation. Mm -hmm. Fair. And I I don't know about you, but if it was me, I'd probably go, I want to be the number one. Yeah, no, I I would as well. Yeah, it it makes me feel 
big and powerful. Mm-hmm. I'm the boss. Uh, yeah, who the boss? Charles the, the boss. boss. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> Edward's views became steadily more puritanical, and he began to question the value of an organised and hierarchical church in his own personal relationship to God. Essentially, what I'm saying is, this guy was on an extended gap year. He was, you know, playing about with newfangled religion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, new philosophical ideas. He was away from his parents and their conservative views for the first time, and he was expressing himself. Okay. You know, he couldn't go to Australia. Um, I think I've worked out the connection between this episode and the last. Is it the Wesleyan church? It's not the Wesleyans. Ugh. We do not see the Wesleyans. Okay. There, there's something that just you notice the Wesleyan churches now. I do as well. I see them yeah. everywhere now. I didn't realise that they were a thing. But mm. Yeah, but see them all the time. One day we will cover the Wesleyans in depth. It's just it's very difficult to work out how exactly their interpretation of the Bible is different to like six or seven other sects, and it's just like it's really nuanced. Some of this stuff. Mm. Eventually, Edward's apprenticeship ended. And it was time to return home, back to Burton. And Edward dutifully took over the family business at the age of 26. Okay. He then got married at the age of 27 in 1593 to an East Midlands lass from Hinckley called Frances Darby. Darby. Yeah. So like most people who come back from a gap year, reality bit. It's like, oh, I've, gap got to, I've got to get a job. Oh, I, should, yeah. I should probably settle down. Yeah. You know, I'll still yeah. I'll still wear my uh, beaded necklace that I got. <laughs> and one braid in my hair. Yeah, convince myself that th- this is just temporary. When I know this yeah. is now, I'm on the grind. Yeah. The couple, though, whether he was, you know, resentful about being tied down or not, they obviously loved each other, mm. at least in the physical sense, yeah. as they would eventually end up having seven children. Oh, my. It's a few. Yeah. And it seemed to all the world that Edward Whiteman was all set up for the comfortable life of a successful Tudor businessman. Uh. You know, the business was already really set up. He didn't have to go through any of the stresses of, um, you know, that, those early years when you only barely have enough money to scrape by month to month and you're trying desperately to expand. It's an established business. He's just got to take the reins and not screw it up. But was it not enough for him? At first it was, definitely. But, unfortunately, he wasn't able to leave the puritanical ideas back in Shrewsbury, where he first picked them up. And he decided that the good people of Burton-upon-Trent might benefit from him sharing some new ideas regarding Christianity by conducting sermons all of his very own. Is this the beginning of a church? Well, it's the beginning of... um, a career as a preacher because Edward Whiteman became a lay Anabaptist preacher okay. and prepared to blow some minds in the name of the Lord. He was going to expand the ever-loving conservative Christian minds. No. No. The good people of Burton-upon-Trent, they, they could be no. ready. I don't think they're ready for his... I don't think you're ready for this journey. <laughs> Beyonce for you there. Mm. I, I appreciated it. I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. At this point, I feel that I may need to give a brief description of what Anabaptist means. And I may, this is a very rudimentary understanding of it from somebody who I will admit I'm not down with the nuances of church history. So I'm doing my best. I'm not either, so 
You could tell me anything. And okay. I'd be like, mm-hmm. As yeah. far as I could tell, Anabaptism originated in Switzerland in the 1520s during the Reformation. Anabaptists believed that only baptisms undertaken during adulthood were valid, as it was a conscious decision on the part of the believer. And it was on January the 21st, 1525, that the first rebaptism took place. Which, I'm, I'm actually quite down with that idea that you, you should be conscious when your soul is given to the Lord. You should be making that decision yourself. I was going to say that seems quite sensible and that mm. makes sense to me. They were also firm believers in the free course of holy worship, arguing that as long as a person followed the word of the scripture, they need not attend a formal worship, and that even if they did, the voice of every person present was of equal value. And they justified this by quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, <clears throat> which I shall now read for you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you have a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Which they okay. interpreted to mean everyone's opinion is valid and everyone, everyone's contribution is equal, so we should work together. Okay, so so far I, I don't see any problem with this. Yeah, but don't you feel that that kind of stinks of communism? <laughs> it does a bit, but you know I've um, I've swayed down that road before. Yes, so. you, you've swaggered down the road of communism. I have, yeah. at least socialism. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, yeah. unsurprisingly, the idea that no formal structure was needed to worship God horrified both the Catholic and Protestant churches. And barely two years after Anabaptism became a thing, they had their first martyr, a man by the name of Felix Manns. What a name! Mm. He was all Manns. Our Felix. After refusing to stop rebaptizing the people of Switzerland, after the act was made illegal in 1527, so it was literally illegal to baptize an adult in Switzerland. <laughs> They're like, no, that's it. So, with the Church of England, you have to be baptized slash christened when you're a baby. I don't think it's as strict anymore. I, you can, you can definitely, um, if you are. Uh, a non-baptized adult and you want to join the church you can get baptized what as an does adult. it mean like do you know i mean i don't know why I, you're not my religious expert i know but God, uh, no. so does it mean anything specifically so you and i well i don't know if you've been christened or whatever nope. but um i have so what does that mean it means like, as far can as i, I be can buried tell in a church? yeah it means that you've started on that path you've been your soul's been given to god you have to do a confirmation of that but it's basically starting you off (laughs) so it's one of the reasons that in this time baptisms were generally done almost immediately it was like days after birth because if a child died and it hadn't been baptized it would go to limbo um and it would remain there so if i die and the judeo-christian sort of you know worldview was correct i'm going to end up you get to go to heaven you know nightclub Um, in london yes (laughs) If that's how heaven would, you know, appear to you, yeah. I'd have to sit around in limbo, which, uh, fair enough. I'll, I'll, as long as you've got something to read. Yeah, I'll make the best the of a fun. bad situation. Yeah. The, the annoying thing will be being able to hear all the fun going on in heaven just through the wall and being like, oh. I'll talk to you through the wall. We can podcast through the wall. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, as long as I get um, to bring my podcasting equipment and we still have access to clean feed, we'll be right. <laughs> But yeah, he, he stopped, even after it was made illegal to rebaptize. He he kept doing it. He kept taking adults and baptizing them left, right and centre. 
I assume they were all consenting. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't just sort of randomly baptising people in the street. I baptise you. He was arrested. And when he refused to recant his Anabaptist ways, he was sentenced to death. It all seems so extreme now, mm. doesn't it? In this particular case, it was death by drowning. And it was a it was a little play on the idea of um, a second baptism. So the the um, authorities <laughs> said, cruel, if you continue to insist that people have a second baptism, we will provide you with a third baptism. So it, it was their way of making a joke. The drowning of him was a joke. It was it was almost me, a point. Shaking my head. <laughs> on January fifth, fifteen twenty seven, Felix was taken in a boat out to the middle of the River Limat. Um, which is at one end of Lake Zurich. So where okay. Lake Zurich sort of flows out is yeah. the River Limat. Okay. He had his hands bound behind his back, pulled behind his knees, and a pole was placed between them. He was then dropped into the freezing cold water. It is reported that his last words were, Into thy hands, O God, I commend my spirit. So he... I, Do you reckon dying wouldn't have been as scary because you genuinely believed that you were going to, like, the Lord. I think... Whereas now, a lot of people don't believe in that, and when they're dying, that's it. That's more minds. scary. I, I think in this case, Felix was very clear that what was about to happen was something that was good for him mm-hmm. personally, because he would be going to heaven. He was yeah. convinced he was right. He was convinced. Even his... Uh, apparently his mum and brother were also Anabaptists, and they were shouting from the shore that he should definitely not repent and that he needed to keep the courage. So the entire family were all in on it. They weren't saying, please, for the love of God, Felix, think about your kids. Yeah. They were going, no, go on, lad. Don't you go weak <laughs> on us now. <laughs> Felix, Felix, Felix. You know, it's the bubbles the are just... Blub, yeah. blub, 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 blub. Yay! He did he it. in the arms of the Lord. He was not the last Anabaptist to be executed on the continent. Luckily for Edward Whiteman, though, even outside of Shrewsbury, after the religious turmoil experienced during the reigns of Henry VIII and Mary, Queen Elizabeth was pursuing a policy of religious tolerance to try and bring Catholics into the new Church of England. So she was trying the softly, softly approach. Mm-hmm. We're so close anyway. Maybe if you just tone down your incense use, we could all worship together. We could heal wouldn't, these wounds. Wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah. And think about the money we'd save on incense expensive you know it's so far away when we're importing it this left her walking a very fine line though and specific persecution of the more extreme protestant movements could be seen by those opposed to the catholic church as a sign that elizabeth was seeking a slow return to catholicism meaning it's just so unstable yeah but what it meant was that edward was able to minister as an anabaptist lay preacher in burton pretty much with impunity so long as he didn't draw too much attention to himself. But he still had Robert Dudley on his side, right? Well, no, Robert Dudley... Um, Is he dead at this point? He, he was looking after the people of Shrewsbury. He wasn't quite oh, okay. so, so so involved Dudley's, in Burton. Dudley's over there. Mm. Mm. I remember, uh, I believe this is correct, that uh, obviously there was a, there was a thing... Uh, with Elizabeth I and Robert Dudley. And then Robert Dudley uh, was 
he kind of wanted to get married to her, but the, the queen was like, no, 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 no. And then he ended up getting married to somebody else, like behind Elizabeth's back. And then he was banished from court because she was so infuriated. He's like, you decided he... you wanted to live the chaste life. Mm-hmm. Not me. I am the queen. <laughs> you shall be blue balled just the way the queen is. Thank you very much. Neither of us shall ever be able to ease this sexual tension that we she feel. She was, she was a virgin. I don't think she was. I, I think it was very good PR. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I, I think more than one person. I, th- I reckon more than one servant died because they saw a bit too much. It's like, mm-hmm. no, you cannot yeah. ever know that Queen Elizabeth got her end away. I was going to say something really disgusting then, but I'm not because it's a, it's a family show. Okay. So. You're talking about she she sleep with someone and she's like, of course now you have to die. <laughs> no, it was worse Wait, than that. But let's continue. <laughs> no, I'm like a black widow spider. <laughs> you knew the terms going in. I bet she had really bad. Well, she was meant to have terrible teeth, wasn't she? Mm, I think lots of people did at that point, especially the rich, because they were the only ones who had access to sugar and brushing their teeth with sugar. Yeah, mm. the best way. The thing is, sugar's like pure white, so you assume. Yeah. Like, well, that's white, so then that's going to... It's going to translate well. teeth. White. So all he has to do, because of the sort of geopolitical situation when it comes to religion in the country, was just not do anything that was going to make him stand out as a special case. There were plenty of, you know, radical preachers around the country who were allowed to just, you know, tend to their small flock of uh, eccentrics in much the same way as today we tolerate hippie communes. Yeah, just a small group of people that you're like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, peace and love, whatever. You do you. Welcome yeah. to the real world. I pay, yeah. I pay my taxes, yeah. but you do you. It sounds like I'm having a go at them. I'm not having a go at the hippies. They're Why'd lovely, you hate misguided. Hippies, it's misguided. Why'd you hate them? Because the problem is not everyone can live that lifestyle. If everybody became a hippie, the world would fall apart. So they're basically mm. relying on the rest of the world doing so the work. this is a very sweeping statement here, but a lot of the people who uh, like fully go on to the hippie uh, trail mm. are usually from quite a wealthy background. Uh, so they can. They have a fallback <laughs> position. Yeah. Oh, I guess I'll just go and work at daddy's company. I'm on my gap, yeah. Mm, yeah. But yeah, so he's, he just don't draw attention to yourself. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in 1596, Burton was the location where a local witch decided to curse a 13-year-old boy for farting at her. <gasps> yes! I know this. Oh, what was the word? What was the word? There was a word that we found really funny. Scrape. Scrape. That's it. To break wind was to scrape at someone. Yeah. The boy's name, of course, was Thomas Darling. And we covered the story in detail way back when in episode 69 Fanar Fanar that was in 2021 that was one of the earlier ones it was one it? of the earlier ones mm. as you know the subsequent attempts at Puritan exorcism by John Darrell interested many of the Puritans in the area and one of them was Edward Whiteman he became increasingly actively involved in documenting the case and it is believed that he was one of the men present in the prayer circles as John Darrell fought to expel the demons from Thomas Darling. He was there. He was there with all the scraping. Not only was he there at the exorcism, Edward was also one of the five men present in May 
1596 to interrogate the alleged witch Alice Goodridge at Burton Town Hall. An interrogation that eventually ended in Alice Goodridge confessing. So you assume he also was actively involved in torture. See, I, took, I was quite impartial to Whiteman, mm. like, but now I'm not sure. Well, as far as Edward was concerned, this case, the Thomas Darling case, you know, if you ignore the subsequent admission of fraud by Thomas Darling and the imprisonment of John Darrell for fraud, it proved to Edward, despite all of that, that any man could experience direct contact with spiritual entities okay. without the need for any religious structure at all. Yeah. This it moved from being on the edges of Christianity to downright heresy. And Edward Whiteman was smart enough to realise that it would jeopardise everything he had if he were to voice it too publicly. So this is what he felt to be true now, but he was at least smart enough to think, I so, can't uh, say that. A more scaled back version of baptism. Not baptism. What was that religion? Anabaptism. That's it. it he's now, he's, he's gone all the way. He's like, I can have a personal relationship with God. I can talk directly to God and to spirits and to demons. And I can have this is that all myself. Evangelical? Is that it? I, it, whatever it is, it would, the English society at this time was not ready for it. No. And he knew that, you know, voicing these things would be suicide essentially. We've gone too far, so yeah. he he believes them, but he's he's not gonna say that. Mm-hmm. You know, just don't tell. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it quiet. But, you see, what he had to lose quickly became less of an issue. Because the last years of the sixteenth century coincided with a significant economic downturn in England. And sadly for Edward and his fellow drapers, the cloth trade was particularly badly hit. And he was forced to try and cut costs to keep his business afloat. So he was yeah. he was no longer thinking about expanding. He was thinking about desperately trying to hang on to what he had. Streamlining. Mm. It was um, almost like, I don't know, a cost of living crisis that he was having to try and weather. Oh, I wonder what that would be yeah. like. Luckily, it's it's a historical anomaly. It's not something that we'll ever have to have to face in our lifetimes. Thank God. At some point, though, these attempts to cut costs likely included trying to either reduce the pay of, or dismiss his apprentice Samuel Royal. Okay. We know that Samuel was not happy with whatever had happened as he brought a court case against Edward Whiteman in the winter of sixteen hundred. Now it seems that Edward didn't immediately appreciate the seriousness of the situation as in January of 1601, he repeatedly failed to attend the court to answer the complaints brought against him. So he was, if I ignore it... It will go away. Yeah. I mean, what's this guy going to do? Sue me? Come on. I didn't realise suing was a thing. Oh, the civil courts have always been there. I think... I, I may be wrong and I may be corrected, but I believe that the sort of civil courts of suing each other predates the criminal courts, because... There was such a thing as blood money, even back in Anglo-Saxon times and Viking times, where you would... You could be compensated. Yeah, if you killed someone, you would be taken to trial, but you would have the opportunity to compensate the family rather than... You you would only be executed if you basically um, defaulted on the debt that was agreed on. So you wouldn't be executed for the murder so much as you'd be executed for defaulting on the money that was agreed. It's always about money. Oh, yeah. 
It's, it's always and what year are we money. in 1600? We're in 1601. Oh, so we've only got... Oh, when did Elizabeth die? 1603, I think. Well, I, I did say we were probably going to get a cameo from James the First. Yeah, mm. yeah. See, it all okay. comes together. Is that it all right? comes together. We'll, 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 I'll give you the exact date, right, I believe. Okay. Great. Yeah. I, th- I think I think you've got it, Bob, on though. 1603. But anyway, he failed to go to court time and time again. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the judge, Sir Humphrey Ferriers, which is a great name for a judge. Hump Ferriers. Humphrey Ferriers. Sir Humphrey Ferriers. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get me in the morning? Because in the afternoon, I'm drunk, and I'm a mean drunk. Um, it, well, he lost patience and found in favour of Samuel Royal, ordering Edward to pay 40 quid, a significant sum of money, as you'll agree, for the time. Mm, yeah. Very significant sum of money for the time. With debts piling up and his business failing, Edward Whiteman was forced to leave his profession as a draper. And in 1603, he used the very last of his funds to purchase a pub and become an innkeeper. Because then this as in now... This when is in Burton. This is in Burton. Yeah. But as now, when people have no money for anything, the last thing they can do is get shit-faced to forget their troubles. So it was mm-hmm. pretty much the recession-proof uh, option for him. It's the British him. way. Yeah. Are you going to stand up to the system and maybe try and affect some change? I'm going to go to Weatherspoons <laughs> and I'm going to get very drunk. I'm going to complain about it and then i may fight someone yeah who is just as drunk and poor as me i think that's Mm. the the proper way the adult way to deal with how upset i am about the situation yeah a long tradition that still continues oh yes ah but we've we've not done that we're we're all right wonderful so he's an innkeeper now Mm -hmm. with no money what's the pub called i don't know um what do you want to call it Let's just call it the Red Lion, just because James will be coming on the throne. And it was him that named all the pubs the Red Lion. Oh, well, you know, James and uh, Ed- Edward, they don't get along. So yeah. let's let's call it the Depressed Draper. Okay. <laughs> no, do you know what we'll call it? The Thomas Darling. Okay. He called fine. his pub the Thomas Darling. Yeah. Um, but this fall from grace, in terms of his professional life, led to Edward focusing more and more on his influence as a radical preacher. Within the Puritan community, he was still seen as a leader, and his sense of self became more and more reliant on this single aspect of his life. Mm -hmm. So he's that guy now who every other bit of his life's gone to shit, and he's just got this one thing that he's praised for. Yeah. That shaped him. But it means that it's it's so much more important to him that he doesn't lose his position as being the, the top dog of this community. This is every every bit of his ego is now tied up. The thing is, it goes a little bit against what he's doing if he wants to be top dog of mm-hmm. this thing, because surely the whole idea is that you don't have a top dog. Mm, well, he's it's it's kind of that I want to be looked up to. I'm not going to say mm. I'm better, but I, I like the idea that people come to me for advice, for support. Um, I get all the gossip. Yeah. and I would love to be a village vicar. Mm. Like, you'd know everything. Like, you'd know who was having it off with who and who was doing what. Oh, it'd be brilliant. I mean, the opportunities for blackmail would just be 
I mean, and I would absolutely do it, blackmail people. See, now it sounds like you'd end up at the murder victim in like uh, a Miss Marple. Yeah, I would. The vicar vicar who knew too much. (laughs) Reverend Green. Yeah, yeah, you would be. You would be the Reverend Green, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Cluedo. Over time, this led Edward Whiteman to be less and less able to accept the views of others when it came to interpreting the scriptures. Because he saw any any challenge, he didn't see it in the in the spirit of you know uh, inquiry and sort of um, pursuit of truth. He saw it as a direct challenge to him, and this mm-hmm. was all he was. He was the the God guy. He was the guy who understood this. So mm-hmm. it it became more and more difficult for him to accept any constructive criticism because he'd see it as a personal attack, I guess, on him and his faith. As as we've already alluded to. Uh, in 1603 it became a much more dangerous personality trait to believe that you knew everything about religion and everyone else was wrong it seems quite culty and it very much feels like that and radicalized i guess yeah it's almost like he's a cult leader without a cult Mm -hmm. um you know he's he's got his own views and they're very strongly held and he's you know rejecting everyone else but not a lot of people are going along with him He's he's going. He's making the transition from being a leader to being infamous in the yeah. local community. People are starting to take a step back oh, and reassess. God, that's, that's the god guy. Yeah. That, oh my god. He Ran used to be cool. I, d- yeah. I don't know how his wife puts up with him. What happened to him? Yeah. But yeah, it was a much more dangerous personality trait to have because Queen Elizabeth and her tolerant ways were gone. Because the same year he bought his pub, James I was crowned king. And James took the title Defender of the Faith very seriously. 1603? Yep. And yes. from the outset of his reign, he made it clear that he saw Protestant dissidents, such as Puritans, Baptists, Quakers, and of course Anabaptists, as a significant problem. So he's preparing some persecutions. This is James I, Bible man. Yeah, he, he wrote his Bible. Witch hunter dude. Yes, he wrote The Hammer of the Witches, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In January 1608, Sir Humphrey Ferriers, the judge who had found against Whiteman, he died. Oh. Yeah. He was probably just incredibly drunk. And he just had a massive aneurysm while propped up at the bar mm. and just fell back with a smile on his face. It's how he would have wanted. I always knew this would be the way. They buried him in the beer garden at his own request. In the barrel. But whilst discussing the death at a gathering at his pub, Edward stated quite loudly that he believed that the soul does not leave the body at the point of death, but instead stays with the body until judgment day, only them making its way to either heaven or hell. So what's when's judgment day? Uh, the end of the world. So we've got to have oh, the okay. second so coming. It stays and all in the body literally yeah. until... You rock around with okay. your body until judgment day. This a long time. at the time was a it was an insanely heretical thing to say, hmm. even amongst the Puritans, and the other Puritan leaders in Burton finally had had enough, and they rather mildly asked Edward to reconsider this assertion. Like hmm. Edward, mate, you've had a rough time. We've tried to be supportive, but you're really going to have to admit like an intervention. That's wrong. Yeah, a little bit like an intervention. Yeah, but by this point. His pompous religious authority was all that Edward had left. So he felt unable to admit that he had said anything wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Instead, he doubled down on his claim to the point that some of his former friends, such as the curate Henry Aberley, felt that they had no choice but to preach against him at the pulpit. So he was being denounced by former friends okay. as a heretic. They're just a bit of a live wire. They don't want to be associated with him anymore. Well, I think the problem is they are associated with him, so they're having to publicly denounce Break him. Break away, yeah. Because they can see where it's headed. They're like, I need to make sure that when people check the record, I was very clearly uh-huh. expressing... What he was doing, yeah. yeah. In the strongest terms, because if anyone can sort of suggest that I was quiet on the issue or that I may have been sort of supportive, I'm, I'm not going, going I'm not going down to... with that guy's boat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's he's sailing with glee towards an iceberg and I am not <laughs> gonna be sit there I'm with not him. Down for that. Yeah. While there was public condemnation for Edward Whiteman, the Puritan community did not excommunicate him. Instead, for over a year, Reverend Arthur Hildersham and Reverend Simon Press met with and corresponded with Edward, hoping to convince him to recant. So okay. they, they really tried with this guy. They, you know, would sit down and enter into long discussions. They would be researching the scriptures to try and find something that would convince him to change his mind. Like, because you see the errors of your ways. Yeah, we, we want you back in the fold. You've had a tough time, but come on, with the support of the community... Come on, socialism, Edward. Remember, we're all together. Enough's enough. We can lift each other up. <laughs> Eventually, though, they both realised that Edward was beyond their help and they gave up. Okay. Now, Edward, probably fatally, he misinterpreted this as an admission that he'd been right all along. And he decided it was now up to him to spread his view of Christianity to as many people as possible. He's gone insane, hasn't he? This was happened. It- it does seem like there may be uh, some mental health indicators issues. of maybe mental illness taking hold. Mm-hmm. He'd been through a lot of stress in a short amount of time. You know, he'd lost a lot of his identity. Yeah. Um, and, and that was his purpose now. Yeah, now he is focused more and more on the idea that he can talk to angels and to mm-hmm. Jesus and to God. I believe in angels. Do, 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 do. Sorry. They're sat in my pub, drinking my beer. Do, 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 do. Angel Gabriel's <laughs> over here. He prefers sherry. And you are listening to the new soundtrack. From the number one blasphemous hit album. Consistently blasphemous. <laughs> well, from 1609, Edward Whiteman was consistently blasphemous. He became an obsessional writer churning out manuscript after manuscript outlining his religious views. And whenever he left his pub, which was not as much now, he's turned into a bit of a hermit, Mm -hmm. but he would always carry a selection of his pamphlets and would read these and preach to anyone who was foolish enough to make eye contact with him. Okay. So now he's evolved into the guy with the sandwich board saying, repent, the end is nigh. Mm -hmm. You know, waving pamphlets and screaming in people's faces. I've got the image in my head. That's the guy in mm-hmm. Burton upon Trent. In fact, you still get them quite a lot in Glasgow. Mm. I mean, mm. I guess the worrying thing for people in his sort of neighbourhood in Burton upon Trent is he'd go and spend the day doing this, and then he'd be behind the bar, and you'd have to sort of having <laughs> avoided making eye contact with him, you'd have to ask him for your beer. Or can you imagine if you didn't realise it was him, and you went in and be like, "Oh God, there's a madman down the road, like preaching and doing all this." Da 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 da. 
And then he'd be like, yes, here's my pamphlet. <laughs> I happen to think he made some good points. Because he was me. <laughs> Rips his moustache off. <laughs> He's been in disguise the entire time. Yeah. I like that. I uh, know people won't speak to Edward Whiteman, but will they speak to Bedward Tightman? <laughs> I have a different personality for every day of the week. Oh, I totally just snorted and laughed. Not surprisingly, though, with these kinds of antics, he became an increasingly isolated figure in Burton, with most of his friends realising that it was only a matter of time before he got himself into deep trouble with the authorities. Mm-hmm. James must know about this he, happening. He will soon, <laughs> in, in the best way possible. Don't okay. you worry. James, James will find out about this man from Burton. But again, Edward Whiteman misinterpreted the situation. He concluded that his being shunned was a test from God. A test that was given to him in order that he could prove that he was both a representation of the Holy Spirit on earth and a new Messiah appointed by God as the saviour of the world. Yeah, he's definitely not well. Mm. I mean, we have the hindsight of the 21st century and it does seem likely that his financial pressures loss of support networks, he'd had a mental breakdown. Mm -hmm. However, in the 1600s, that concept didn't really exist. So there was absolutely no chance of Edward getting any form of help. But I suppose this was the thing with uh, when they changed over from Catholicism to Protestantism, Mm. that before you had that structure, didn't you? And Mm. everything was uh, read to you in Latin and you kind of didn't really know what it meant. You were just... Yeah, the priest would then say, this meant this. And uh-huh. you're like, Ooh. But then when it got converted into English or the language of wherever you're from, then people could start to understand it a bit more and then have their own interpretations of it. So then you think every single person reading the same book will actually get something completely different out of it, depending on their mood and where they are in life. So it just opened a can of worms, really, didn't it? Yeah. Um, People having the ability to question makes things more messy and makes absolutes harder to come by. It's one of the reasons that, you know, the playbook of fascism is immediately get rid of dissenting voices, um, mm -hmm. you know, reduce the amount of things that the populace have access to in terms of information Mm. in order that you can try and narrow down the narrative. Yeah, ban books and stuff. Mm. And we're, we're in a period where that was kind of reversed at this point and more things were being open because this was when, you know, uh, we're getting towards when writing was more available to the masses and, a you know, pop, you know a greater population of the citizens could read. It still wasn't anywhere near, you know. I mean, and everyone loved a pamphlet. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, we're, we're not quite at the, uh, the, the zenith Georgian, of the Georgian yeah. pamphleting where every bugger had a pamphlet. You I'm get very printed. crossed with Mary down the road. Here's my pamphlet about her. I said, was it one of the stories we did where there was a woman who, who worked, her two jobs were prostitute and pamphlet uh, maker. She would print <laughs> pamphlets. A PP. Yeah, she she was a prostitute pamphlet printer. That was her. She was a treble P. But she, she was like working out of a basement where she had a bed and a printing press. <laughs> she, like... Well, I suppose it's the equivalent to like a lot of people now, their reaction, they, they'll tweet something out like instantly. But can you imagine being really mad at, I don't know, something? Uh, there was a sheep in the way of my cart earlier. I'm and I think go... all sheep should be made to stay outside of the confines of Derby 
uh, between the hours of 9 and 12.15 because that is when I drive my cart. Now, everybody read the pamphlet. Yes. Go. I will explain in 200 bullet points why this needs to be enacted right now, forthwith. But yeah, I, I, know I guess I would I've definitely be that like person a, that. Like a I would tweet, be... but it was the equivalent because it was. Mm-hmm. You could write it in an afternoon. You could get, you know, half a dozen printed by the evening. And then you could be walking around, you know, just handing it out to people and going, You agree with me, don't you? Mm. Hmm. We can get a movement going. <laughs> maybe if we all turn up at the same place and chant we could have some kind of flash mob that'll get yeah. people's attention yeah maybe we can dance <gasps> oh yeah although you're not allowed to protest anymore well almost mm. well you're allowed to protest longer so nobody gets offended at all well i was outside downing street last week and there was protesters yeah uh, holding signs well it was actually outside of it was on parliament square outside the mm. churchill Thing and it was basically slagging off Brexit and the Tories, um, and I took a took a took a few photos. And I was is like, that yes, protesting? Boss. Is that pointing out facts? I feel I feel like they're well, just what they did is they took reality. loads of um, they took loads of Churchill quotes, but like changed them slightly. So they put like Brexit in there, and like instead of this being the best thing, this is like this is the worst thing. It's like yeah. Anyway, it's quite clever what they did, mm. but um, yeah. Interesting. Things came to a head for Edward Whiteman during Lent in 1611. Okay. Because during the sermon, Edward began shouting out from the pew, trying to correct the reverend on a number of points (laughs) and making a number of heretical claims. I think you'll find that's wrong, sir. And I should know, I talk to God every morning. He's told me that I am the new Messiah. I am in love with God. Though the locals tried to dissuade him, again, these Puritans were just so gentle. They're like, Edward, no. Come on now, Edward. We're just trying to have a nice sermon here. It's Lent. We're all hankering after certain vices. So this is, this is the, his old church? That he, was, he was still attending a church, yeah. Right. But he, he decided to attend and just shout the odds and, and try to make his point in a more public way. Uh, he continued to rant and rave, even with the gentle prompts from his pew neighbours to just mm-hmm. quieten down, mate. Uh, and he eventually had to be bundled out of the church physically. <laughs> We've had enough. So they were dragging him down the central aisle while he's going, and another thing, <laughs> your body stays with your soul and your soul stays with your body until judgment day. Which is tomorrow. If I'm any judge. Finally out of patience, the religious leaders of Burton made a plea to the bishop to do something about Whiteman. Mm-hmm. Now, the bishop of Lichfield was Richard Neal, and he shared the king's view of nonconformists, so he was more than happy to take charge of the situation. Mm-hmm. He gathered a group of senior clergy and issued an arrest warrant compelling Whiteman to be brought before him for interrogation. Now, hearing about his imminent arrest, Whiteman decided that the best thing for him to do would be... Uh... Oh, he's going to protest his uh, righteousness of fact. So he's going to say that he's right. I, I hoped you'd be like, he, he's going to run away. He's going to yeah. go to the continent. He's going to, you know, get out of Dodge. But no, you're you're 100% right. He thought the uh-huh. best thing for him to do would be to collect all of his most heretical views into a bumper pamphlet and to have this delivered to a number Special of... Special edition. Yeah. All of my greatest hits. 
I am God. <laughs> I know better than Jesus. All of my greatest hits in one place. He had this bumper pamphlet of heresy delivered to a number of higher-ranking clergy members. I mean, good for him for sticking to what he... Do you know what I mean? Like oh. He's not going back on his word. He's just like, yeah, this is a fact. Yeah, he was just 100% committed because he also, rather optimistically, I feel, he had a copy sent directly to King James I himself. <laughs> and I think you'll find, King Shams, that I am correct. Yeah. I'm happy, if you want to come to my poor Bim Burton, to explain further, uh, Your Highness, um, all the points at which you, uh, the King of England, uh, have got Christianity wrong. Uh, I think you'll be happy to change your views from Christian orthodoxy to what I'm going to be describing as Whitemantism. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's a working title. Fine. Sadly, because I really wanted to read it, no okay. full copy of his bumper pamphlet exists. <sighs> However, it is known that one of the assertions he made, because they found some scraps, was that most of all hated and abhorred of God himself is the common received faith contained in those three inventions of man, commonly called the three creeds. The Apostles, Nicene and Athanasius Creed, which faith within these 16,000 years past hath prevailed in the world. Okay, so what does that mean? I don't know what that means. We'll get into that. Okay. King James, who was very public about his orthodox stance, and would not tolerate a pub owner from Burton preaching that the Holy Trinity was a lie and that Jesus Christ was just a man albeit Edward Whiteman, did allow that he was a man without sin. Okay. So he's like, Jesus Christ, yeah, he was a good guy. He's a great guy. One of my favourite guys. But he wasn't the son of God now, was he? He was just a dude. He's a cool dude. Oh, okay, so he didn't believe he was the son of God. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of things he believed. Uh, oh, wow. When he was finally examined by Bishop Neal on November 19th, 1611... Edward didn't hold back on why orthodox Christianity was in error. And by the second day of the trial on November 26th, the crowd wanting to watch proceedings was so large that they needed to move to a bigger venue. So he, okay. he was drawing in the crowds. He's crazy. Mm. People wanted to see. Yeah. And I, it reminds me a little bit of Donald Trump. It really does. Because it's just so wacky yeah. and out there. It's that you like, kind of want to see it for yourself. Nobody believes what he's selling, but oh, I've got to see it. Mm-hmm. Because, look, he's, he's going to say something even more crazy in a minute. You yeah. just wait. Over the course of the trial, a list of 16 individual heretical claims were recorded, any one of which would be enough to condemn him. These included that Jesus Christ is only a man and a mere creature and not both God and man in one person. That I, Edward Whiteman, is the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18 in the words... I will raise them up a prophet, and in Isaiah, I alone have trodden the winepress, and in that place, whose fan is in his hand. I don't get the second ones, but... It's very narcissistic, isn't it? Yes. I, uh, that, that text is actually about me. Yeah. It gets better. That I was the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, spoken of in John 16. That the words of Jesus on the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit refer to him... So he's now, I am the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that you shouldn't blaspheme against me. And even though he was just a bloke, I think we should listen to him because he was, after all, without sin. Right. 
that the souls He's lost his mind. Yeah, that the souls of the elect departed, that is, dead people, are not in heaven. That the baptizing of infants is an abominable custom. Okay. That the practice of the Church of England in reference to the Lord's Supper and baptism are incorrect, and baptism of water should be administered only to those who are of sufficient age and understanding. And that Christianity is not wholly professed and preached in the Church of England, but only in part. So the Church of England have got major bits wrong. Although he did okay. concede that their heart was in the right place and they were trying. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, King James, you're trying, and God loves a trier, but I'm here, the to Holy Spirit, you, to tell you how to do wrong. it better. Yeah. I can imagine that the king didn't take to that too kindly. He did yeah. not. As a uh, almost certain fellow homosexual... Uh, he would have been fucking furious. <laughs> like, probably, we, um, they say hell have no uh, fury like a woman scorned. They've um, they've obviously never met a homosexual that's slightly inconvenienced. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> we will go wild. It's why I try to never inconvenience you. Was like, is it is it okay if we record now, Ollie? I don't want to stop you playing your computer. I game. love it how you love me and you're scared of me at the same time. <laughs> It's like all my relationships with people. I'm Did I do good, Ollie? Did I do good? Are you happy with it? I can redo it. <laughs> do it again! <laughs> Bishop Neil summoned Edward Whiteman for a final time on December 19th to pass sentence. Mm-hmm. He informed Edward that he had been found guilty of heresy on multiple counts and that if he did not recant, he would be burned at the stake at the discretion of the king. Okay. So he would advise that he should be burned at the stake, but ultimately the king would decide. Yeah. Considering that another denier of the Holy Trinity called Bartholomew Legate had been tried almost simultaneously in the capital and was due to be burned at the stake in Smithfield, London, on March 18th, 1612, it was clear that getting the king to consent to the execution would not be an issue. He was mad. Oh, he was fuming. Edward's execution date was set for two days after Bartholomew's. And even after hearing that the sentence had been carried out in Smithfield in front of a large jeering crowd, Edward refused to change his views. I mean, good for him for sticking to his principles, I guess. This is a man deep in the throes of a mental illness. Mm-hmm. This is this is someone who should not be being uh, tried and executed. It's someone who should be receiving medical help care. and he support didn't and care. understand it, I guess, back then yeah. so much. Which is why... On March 20th, 1612, Edward Whiteman was led to a stake that had been set up in the town. Ironically, it was next to a church called St Mary's, just like the church in Shrewsbury that had started Whiteman down the road of nonconformity. It's all in a circle. Yeah. Edward was tied in place and the fire was lit under him while a large crowd watched on. As the heat began building and he started to feel his skin scorching, Edward Whiteman reconsidered his position. He screamed out that he wanted to recant, and the locals, perhaps realising that they didn't actually want to watch a man burned alive, quickly rushed forwards to pull him down. Okay. And apparently a lot of them got um, burns trying to tear him down, so people put themselves at significant at danger because they, they, they're like, he's, he's recanting. Yeah. You know, he's seen the error of his ways. The system works. Let's, let's get this man down. Yeah. He's one of us again. Edward was returned to his cell, badly burned, but definitely still alive, while a full written retraction was prepared for him to sign. 
The contents of this document were read to Edward, and he agreed that it was accurate. However, while the relevant legal processes were being carried out to make the document valid, Edward had time to think about what had happened. Don't say he went back on his word again. He may have spoken to God again and found a new source of divine courage. Or it might be that he considered that the burns he had already suffered would eventually prove fatal and he didn't want to spend a couple of extra days on this earth in absolute agony. Okay. Whatever the reason, though, when the document was brought back for him to sign, Edward refused and began reasserting his beliefs as loudly as he could. So he doubled down on the blasphemy. Okay. And this actually, it proved to be a real administrative nightmare for the authorities in Litchfield where he was being burned. As the date approved for the execution had passed, they actually needed to go through the full process of requesting from the king again approval for the execution (laughs) and a new date before it could be carried out. So basically the king had signed a document saying, I approve that this this man, on this date, this man shall be um, executed via being burnt at the stake. And because... Edward, you know, they're getting the um, sort of recanting documents signed and uh, whatever they had to do with lawyers and stuff had taken mm. them the rest of that day. Yeah, It had passed and they're like, well, we can't burn him on now. The... Yeah, we can't burn him on legal, the 21st yeah. because the king said he could be burned on the 20th. We need to go back to the king and ask if we can't burn him uh, sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. It actually took nearly three weeks to sort out. <laughs> but on the 11th of April... 1612, a slightly crispy Edward Whiteman was led to the stake for a second time and tied in place. Again, the fire was lit under him. And again, when he felt the heat rising, Edward cried out that he wished to recant. However, this time the crowd did not surge forwards to help him. And the sheriff who was overseeing the execution told Edward in no uncertain terms that he would cause him no more trouble. And instead, he ordered even more faggots of wood thrown onto the fire. Edward's desperate screams eventually ceased, and he was rapidly burnt to ashes. (sighs) Despite having signed the death warrant for Edward Whiteman twice, King James was not convinced of the effectiveness of public executions for deterring heretics. Increasingly concerned about making martyrs who might increase the support for non-Orthodox beliefs, he decided to pursue a policy of letting anyone found guilty of heresy rot silently in prison instead. This course of action was also pursued by his son Charles I and, following a bit of a hiatus, by his grandson Charles II, until a punishment of death by being burned at the stake for heresy was formally terminated by an Act of Parliament in 1677. As a result, Edward Whiteman has gone down in history as the last person to be burned at the stake for heresy in the United Kingdom. Though that is not to say that he was the last person to be executed for heresy, nor to say that he was the last person to be burned at the stake. But those will be... The combination of the two. Yeah, those will be stories for future episodes, don't you worry? So, I asked you a question Mm. pre-coming on air, and now I'm going to ask you again, because you said it was relevant to the story. Mm. Would you prefer to be burnt alive or drowned? And you can't say neither. You have to choose one. If... If I had to choose, mm-hmm. I would go for being burnt at the stake. And I will tell you for why. Because a lot of people who were burnt at the stake were either 
allowed to have a, a relative place a pouch of gunpowder around their neck or they were garroted before the sentence was actually carried out. So there would be a chance that you would be dead before having to go through that slow death. Whereas if you are being drowned, those options aren't really available to you. So if, if you're sentenced to death by drowning, you will be drowned. And the idea of being drowned terrifies me. Whereas if you were sentenced to being burned alive, there'd still be a chance that you'd be dead before um, the flames started to really sort of bite. So that's interesting because I didn't know that you could get gunpowder and garroted and stuff before yeah. that. Because and I would have gone with drowning. Mm. The idea of being burnt alive just sounds horrendous. Well, the very last um, official death by uh, being burnt at the stake was a, a, a lady forger, and it was fun because um, her husband, who'd been uh, fun. her husband, fun. yeah, fun little thing, her husband who'd been sentenced for the same crime, he'd been hung. So she okay. was marched out past the bodies of, I think it was her husband and seven other blokes who'd been hung uh, and tied to a stake. But what they'd done is they'd set it up with a rope around her neck um, and they kicked the stool out from under her. So she'd basically been hung. They left her for half an hour before they actually lit the fire. So she'd oh. technically um, been burnt, al- dead. burnt at the stake, but she was clearly dead. So she she doesn't really go down as... She was the last person officially to die by that but she didn't really. Yeah, there was a combination yeah. of, of two things at play. Mm. And this would have been short drop, I'm guessing, or long drop. No, we were um, we were still back in the short drop days then. I'm all about the long drop. But for her, it would have been short drop, definitely, because, I mean, mm. it was it was something they rigged up to the stake to try and sort of ease her suffering. Right. Got it, yeah. Which is it's a nice thing, I guess. They were, they were mm-hmm. trying to be nice to her. They were trying to do I mean, their the best. nicest thing would be to not, uh, you know, execute someone for forgery because mm-hmm. we we covered that. That was um, because it was considered treasonous to make uh, a likeness of the king, and yeah. all coinage had the king on. Therefore, Have it became treasonous. Have you had treason. a new King Charles coin? Yeah, had it. What am I being sent one? No, I mean because they're coming. They're in circulation now. Well, oh, they're are starting they? To, they're starting to come in circulation. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm cashless, so I've not. Yeah, I don't have any cash. I, I will eventually, I'm sure, get hold of one. The stamps are getting released this week, I think. Woo-hoo. So everyone, go out and buy your stamps. Uh-huh. Because I went to the Postal Museum and I learned all about it there. Well, you would do. If you if you didn't learn about stamps at the Postal Museum, what are they even doing? Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.